Welcome to the Essay for FA's Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors, including ETFs, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today I am delighted to have as my guest investment advisor Adam Grossman of Boston-based Mayport Wealth Management. Adam's articles on investing appear on his blog at mayport.com and also on Humble Dollar and are always highly sensible. We will be hearing some of that common and uncommon sense shortly. But first, this message. If you're a financial advisor, you should be using Seeking Alpha Premium. I'll mention just two items I personally think are valuable for advisors. Number one, advisors typically get investment research from their own broker-dealer and it's good to cross-reference that with the research available to Seeking Alpha Premium subscribers. Number two, the quantitative ratings available to premium subscribers are an incredible value add because they make it possible to compare investments with mutually consistent data. In other words, it aids in getting different investment ideas to talk to each other, as it were. These features are just the tip of the iceberg, and it costs only $240 for an annual subscription. Click on Upgrade on the top right of your Seeking Alpha homepage to see a full list of benefits and options. Call Your Advisor has been the order of the day these past few weeks, so we've got veteran advisor Adam Grossman on the line. Adam, welcome to our show. Good morning, Gil. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, the pleasure is ours. Thanks for joining us. Adam, I'll start here. The rapidity with which the stock market has been shedding value has reached historic proportions. Tell us how your clients are handling this and how you're handling them, as it were. I would say that people fall into three categories at a time like this. And I'm certainly seeing the same thing this time around. There are the buyers. Those are the people who smell a bargain and they want to get aggressive. And so they're calling and they're asking, is this the bottom? Is this the time? How much should I be investing? They're looking for every spare dollar to invest. They want to rebalance aggressively. They see this as an opportunity. So those are the buyers. That's the first group. The second group are the people who I would call the sellers. So they're the people who are really feeling rattled. They're calling and they're fearful and they're asking, tell me why I shouldn't just go to cash and get back in when the dust settles. It's, you know, it's a scary time. And so that, that's group two. The third group are perhaps somewhere in the middle. There isn't necessarily a label for them, but I'd say they're, they're the people who really just don't want to discuss it. They have a low-level fear. They're certainly not interested in being aggressive, but they also are the category who, you know, traditionally when your account statements came in the mail, they were the people, the people who wouldn't open their account statements. They just want to put it out of their mind. So those are the three groups. And, you know, I'm trying to work with people on an individual basis to see you know, what, what makes sense for them, uh, because your emotional response may not necessarily be uh, what, what makes sense for you, given your, your individual situation. So what would be the thrust of the investment advice you're giving to them at this time? The advice I would give is the same as what any advisor would give, which is that you want to avoid panicking. You want to stick to your plan. You want to avoid selling low at, you know, at all costs, if, if at all possible. But this situation also is different from, I would say, other stock market downturns, which is that it's having an impact in the real world. This isn't just about paper losses, so to speak, because there are a lot of people who are not able to go to work and it's affecting their income. And it, in particular, is affecting people 
who maybe viewed their income as very reliable. Um, take somebody who's an orthopedic surgeon, for example. Many hospitals have put a moratorium on elective surgeries. And so people who might have been doing knee replacements or hip replacements, things that are very reliable and profitable and bring home a good paycheck, those people may be seeing their, their incomes drop, you know, perhaps to zero if they're in private practice uh, until this is over. So for those people, it's a different set of considerations. It's not just about, oh, ignore it, the, you know, this too shall pass, you know, that kind of standard advice when you're talking about just, you know, strictly long-term assets. Well, then what do you advise him? <laughs> I actually saw there was a, somebody who had a travel service. His entire business, it was a very large-scale business, is, is gone, at least temporarily. What do you advise people like that to do? In those cases, what I'm doing is to really, you know, sharpen the pencil and get out the calculator and to go through the math. So, you know, the, the one silver lining of having a high income, like I gave the example of an orthopedic surgeon, is that even though that person may see their, their paycheck uh, diminished or, or suspended for a time being, hopefully they, they also have some savings. And so, you know, what I'm doing with those people is to talk through it and to ask, okay, well, let's, let's look at your household spending needs. Let's suppose that your income does go to zero for, call it two months. How will you be able to get through with the cash reserves that you have and to kind of work through that and see, you know, do we have a problem here or, or not? Certainly, if you're somebody who's used to a regular paycheck, then this feels scary. But the, the question is, is it actually a problem? And so that's, you know, that's where, you know, you have to put on the, the green eye shade, so to speak, and just look at it dispassionately. Makes sense. Good times tend to obscure errors in portfolio construction, but these become much more apparent in times like now. What mistakes are you seeing in the portfolios that prospective clients are bringing to your attention? If there's one thing that's really surprised me in recent weeks, it's the municipal bond market. So over the past few weeks, what we've seen is stocks go down precipitously and interest rates also go down precipitously. Those two together should have been a recipe for the bond market rallying. But the municipal bond market has reacted differently. And what's happened, which really nobody expected, is that investors became fearful about the ability of municipalities to weather this storm. And every municipal bond is different. You know, some are general obligations, some are tied to toll revenue, some are tied to airport revenue. But at times like this, what investors tend to do is to push the sell button and to do the analysis later. And they figure, well, let, let me just get out and, you know, I don't have the time to sit and figure out whether this particular bond is, is safe or not. And so as a result, people have been selling municipal bonds and they've been redeeming from municipal bond funds. And the effect has been that municipal bond fund managers have been in the position of having to do just distressed sales of bonds in their portfolio. Whether there's a real danger or not, in terms of default risk, the bond fund managers have been forced to sell. And so that's created a liquidity crunch. And so bonds have lost money over the past few weeks in ways, municipal bonds specifically, have lost money in ways that people did not expect. There was a day last week when just a broad-based national municipal bond fund lost about 5%. That's, that's unheard of. Wow. Does that mean you see opportunities in that particular sector right now? 
Part of the answer to that is that the municipal bond market had seen a run-up last year. So to some extent, this is taking the excess out of the market, but certainly bond fund managers are reporting that they are seeing opportunities because if you are able to be a buyer and there are distressed sellers on the other end, for sure, this is presenting opportunities. And uh, while we're talking about uh, opportunities in bonds, we might as well switch over to stocks. Are you seeing opportunities there? The conversation that I always have is to think about, well, what's the worst case scenario? And so in modern times, what we've seen is declines of 50% from peak to trough. We saw that in 2000 and we saw that in 2008, 50% more or less. Of course, in the Great Depression, it was much more. But in modern times, 50% has been sort of the standard in terms of a stress test. And so what I'm encouraging people to do is to think in those terms. And so right now, as we speak, the market is down between 25 and 30% from its peak in late February. So I view this as an opportunity, but I wouldn't call stocks cheap at this point. I would call them fairly valued. And so if you have some money that's on the sidelines, what I would encourage people to do is to think incrementally, to buy some, but not put every spare dollar into the market. And to use that metric of a, of a 50% down, a rule of thumb of the 50% down as a guide so that if you see it getting closer to 40 or 50% down, then you want to become more aggressive. But you know, people who put every spare dollar in at the first sign of a crack in the market when it's down, say, 5 or 10%, uh, you know, have losses on their hands. And so I think it's better to, to take it a little bit incrementally. Advisors talk about the need to individually tailor financial plans. In reality, how different are the portfolios of your various clients? It's a great question. I think that one of the things that makes financial planning difficult is that, that there are many rules of thumb and rules of thumb can be helpful. They're certainly better than operating in a vacuum. At the same time, everyone is different. And so rules of thumb have limits to their usefulness. For example, with asset allocation, people often speak in terms of a rule of thumb of 100 minus your age so that your bond allocation should reflect your age. Well, that makes sense. In general, that makes sense. But if you think about somebody like Bill Gates, he's 64 years old. Should his bond allocation be the same as any other 64-year-old? So certainly not. And so I think that that illustrates that while none of us is Bill Gates, every one of us is different. And so each portfolio should reflect that individual's income, their time horizon to retirement or whether they're already in retirement, their spending needs, and also their level of of risk tolerance. So, you know, just simply their ability or interest in taking risk, you know, if if they don't need it, then the question is, well, how much risk do we necessarily need to take? That's something that is also very individual. So it's part math and it's part emotional tolerance. Makes sense. And how do you clarify those goals with your clients? Sometimes people get distracted, certainly in a market like this and in a pandemic and panic like this. How do you help clients clarify and define their goals? What I think is useful is to try, to the extent possible, to quantify and to put a timeline on every goal. And so for most people, 
when they're earlier in their career, what that might look like is to purchase a home, to build an emergency fund. When they're further along, it might be saving for college and saving for retirement. Those are the most typical goals. So to the extent possible, what we try and do is to think about, well, what, what will each of those things cost and what are your goals? And some people can be more specific than others. Some have a very fixed idea that their children will go to a four-year college and they want to save for a sort of full-price college. Other people have a very fixed idea of retirement. They want to retire at 60 and not a day later. For other people, they're not as specific, but the goal is to do, to do the best you can. There's the expression that you don't want to let the, the best be the enemy of the better, so you do the best you can. And I would say retirement is usually the largest and most daunting of those goals. Yet most Americans are behind in achieving adequate savings. What do you think is the cure to this economic malady? Well, Gil, I don't want to get political, but I think that one solution would be to expand Social Security. The idea would be not to make the contribution rate higher on a mandatory basis, but to allow people optionally to contribute more. And here's why. Social security is an annuity, and it solves for a big problem, which is longevity risk, outliving your money. And so economists have understood for a long time that annuities, in theory, are a great product, but people don't buy them very much. And economists, as you've talked about in a prior podcast, view this as a puzzle. And I think the reason is mainly because annuities have a bad reputation. For a long time, they have been saddled with unnecessary complexity and saddled with high costs. And so people view them as a quote-unquote bad product. But in theory, if you just look at an annuity on paper, if no one had ever seen an actual annuity in the marketplace, if they just looked at it on paper, they would say, that's an ideal product because maybe I'll live till a certain age, my neighbor will live uh, till a different age. Maybe he outlives me or maybe I'll outlive him but we offset each other's longevity risk. So it really is an ideal product. And in the absence of the insurance industry delivering products that are really appealing to individual investors, I think that Social Security could fill that gap. Now, does the federal government and the Social Security Administration, do they have the the most uh, trustworthy reputation? Well, they're not perfect either, but I think that people do have more faith in the federal government maybe than an individual insurance company. And so I, I do think that that would be one solution. We'll see, if, uh, we'll see if anybody listens there in Washington. I hope they do. Now, let's talk about another institution besides insurance companies and the government that people are skeptical of, financial advisors. Tell us what you've done to make believers out of this skeptical group of investors out there. I'm looking for a personal anecdote here. Well, first I'll say that the umbrella term financial advisor it really refers to two industries. And I think that that is part of the problem is that there are under that umbrella, there are brokers, traditional brokers, and there are what I would call fiduciary planners. And from a legal regulatory framework, those are really two very different types of companies. And yet we all call ourselves financial advisors. And I think that that's created confusion in the marketplace for consumers. So I'll, I'll illustrate the difference. I remember speaking with a new client a few years ago. What I always do is to start off by walking through their current portfolio. We go line by line and talk about each investment that's in there. And we want to have a discussion about what is it, why, 
What purpose does it serve? Why is it in there? Should it continue to be in there? And we got to one item on this fellow's account statement, and he had no idea what it was, and I had no idea what it was. And I had to actually go find the prospectus, which was not so easy to find, and to look up what this investment was. And I remember that the name on the prospectus, the name for the investment was 17 words long. And it was just an, an unnecessarily complex instrument. And this was an example of something that a broker had sold. And it's not something that necessarily a fiduciary planner would have recommended. But I think that that's the difference is that brokers see themselves as salespeople and that is their role. And they don't necessarily see themselves as advisors and planners in the same way that fiduciary planners do. But because we all call ourselves financial advisors, I think that that creates confusion. And so if, if it were up to me, I think that I, I would like to see the government come up with some new and better terminology to distinguish so that people understood that if you simply want a broker to do a transaction, that those people are available and that's one type of service. And if you're looking for somebody to do planning, that that really is a different type of professional and that they shouldn't be called the same name. Social Security Administration and the SEC and FINRA get in touch with Adam, a level head, calm, cool, and collected demeanor, a voice of sanity at a time of general panic. Adam Grossman, thank you so much for joining our show today. Thank you, Gil, and take care. You too. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you found this podcast with Adam of value, consider passing it on to one other advisor. Also, feel free to contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com with any feedback. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.